Nobody went to school for sales. Each of us has our own journey, a journey that ultimately reveals the two opposing forces, the art versus science, the relationships versus the metrics, selling versus sales. What side are you on? This is the Love Selling, Hate Sales podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Love Selling, Hate Sales. Today, I am joined by Andy Paul, who is an author, podcaster, speaker, and consultant. Andy, thank you for joining the show. It's great to have you. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Josh. I mean, you can't do all those things and not be a consultant, right? Like, you got to get paid for this. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, I know. Yeah. I do some. I mean, I do... I do a little less than I used to, um, but uh, yeah, it's still there. A little less than you used to is probably a good place to be, right? Like you, you get to that point where you're like just grinding, grinding, grinding. You want to do a little bit less. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah. I used to do more big consulting projects or real wholesale trail sales transformation type things for small, mid-sized companies. And don't do that quite as much more sort of, coaching and advising CEOs and, and sales leaders on uh, things they should be doing. Things they should be doing. Well, let's talk about some things that anyone in sales should be doing. And you know, sales <laughs> is, me. oh, no problem at all. Sales is one of those things that kind of has a stigma floating around it, right? It's uh, going all the way back to, I don't know, forever where, you know. They, yeah, they, I'd say, yeah. When did commerce start? You know, four or 5,000 years ago, probably about then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is what was the commercial that just came out? Was it, I don't know if it was this Super Bowl or the last Super Bowl where it was a one of the car vending machine commercials and they were kind of using the salesperson as this is anti-salesperson ad, right? They get dropped in and it's like the carny saying, oh, come here, do a demo, take a test drive. And it was just like really pitching the salesperson as the worst possible human being on the planet. And that's why you would go to a car vending machine and buy, buy a car. Yeah, and that stereotype persists, as you know, and it's it's uh, on one hand exaggerated and unfair, and on the other hand, it's well deserved. Yeah, so I mean, that's what we're up against, right? I mean, if, if you're in sales in some capacity, and I would say that you know the most of the folks listening to this show are probably in the in the B two B SaaS world of, in in some cases, but you're certainly still up against some of those same perceptions, right? Yeah, well, I said it's in some cases unfair, but they're also, there's, they exist for a reason because this is the way salespeople act. Yeah. And it's part of the reason I wrote my latest book, sell without selling. I was just talking about this is because we're really not getting better at that dimension of it. And it's having an impact on not just how buyers perceive sellers, but also sellers ability to perform at at high levels. Yeah. And, And so we're not getting any better at it. Who are we blaming for not getting better at? Is it leadership? Is it uh, your own personal accountability? Is it you don't know any better? <laughs> let's let's <laughs> kind of get to the root of this a little bit. Uh, it's a mix. Everything's a mix, right? Yeah. But I think it, it starts with culture that you set, the expectations you set for sellers in terms of what their jobs are, which yeah, it's sort of ultimately leadership's responsibility, but some of it's just like in the ether, right? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah, I was talking to a woman who runs, she's like dean of a sales program at Kansas State University, which is okay. um, Don Dieter Schmelz, and she's one of the oldest, more established undergraduate sales programs. You actually get a degree in sales. Interesting. And she talks about working with freshmen coming in, they're taking their introduction to the professional selling course, mm-hmm. and they do role-playing. 
And these people have no sales experience whatsoever, no exposure to sales whatsoever. And they default to being hugely salesy, right? Interesting. <laughs> you know, behaviors that are actually learned behavior somehow. It's like, you know, pitchy and, you know, self-driven and, you know, purely self-interested and right. uh, manipulative. And, and it's like, well, that's just in the ether. That's what we think sales is, right? People that know nothing about sales. When you tell them to sell something, they automatically default to this behavior that buyers hate. And that, quite frankly, most sellers hate as well, having to practice, but they feel this pressure somewhat culturally. This is, this is how sellers act. Right. And, right. and so <laughs> the premise of my book in, in one of them is say, look, you know, we could take all these behaviors I call salesy or I call selling out that mm -hmm. our buyers resist, that our buyers hate, that sellers for the most part hate. And we could just stop doing it. We could do cold turkey today. We could, you and I could declare a holiday, Josh, that today <laughs> is the end of selling out. And across the world, everybody would disagree. We're going to still stop this. And you know what? No one would be worse off because of it. Yeah. I mean, you're totally right. And, you know, I think that the culture and the, the perception that's created is gone into, I don't know if you saw this study by Gartner not too long ago, but basically they polled all of these buyers, you know, this is enterprise level buyers mm. saying, if you could do this without a salesperson, would you basically? And it was like 90 high nineties percentage. Like, yeah, if we could get away with salespeople, we would. I don't know if that's reality, yeah. but you know, what are your well, thoughts? So there? yeah, I think that's bullshit, right? <laughs> so now, but for this reason, yeah, is if you're a seller who's mm. selling out, if 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 you have no value to add to the buyer, right? Right. Then they don't have time for you, and I agree 100 in that case. But so, this this blanket statement that buyers don't want to talk to sellers. Oh, they absolutely do. They just yeah. don't want to talk to those types of sellers. And yeah. as long as the salesy sellouts are the sort of majority of the professional sales world. Yeah. They'll find another way to do it because how are we helping them? But if you're, you know, any self-aware organization says, look, we have a problem because, you know, we, we, we think we know what our problem is. We think we know what we're trying to achieve. Right. We sit around internally and we chit chat, chat, chat about it. But the software organization knows, yeah, we really need an outside perspective to help us think, are we really thinking about this the right way, right? Right. And there's actually been studies done about this, this whole issue about, uh, if you heard of strong ties and weak ties, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're working with people, you have strong ties. And but what happens is that you sort of start homogenizing all the things you know. Right. And the sociologists talk about as being the information you know is redundant. I mean, we all know the same things. Well, you need somebody that has weak ties, like a salesperson, if they're able to do this, to come in and help you think a little bit differently, right? Provide some insights, uh, help you may think, you know, change your paradigm about how you how you sell. Well, yeah, I said self-aware organizations know that's what we need. They're just hoping that the salespeople they talk to can do that. If they can't, they have no time for them. So it's really this thing is that, yeah, the buyers are starting getting frustrated, and saying, yeah, if you can't help us, we will do this on our own. It's not that we prefer to do it on our own. That's where I think they get it wrong. It's not that we prefer to. We prefer to make the best decision we can. Right. You know, right. within the constraints that we have. Right. 
we want to make a good decision. If you can help us with that, great. We want your input. If you can't help us, we have no time for you. We're just going to do it on our own. It's so interesting. I was, I was just getting ready to ask you, like, define value, but you did it, right? Basically, it's getting... Well, well, I have a specific definition of value from a buyer's perspective. So from a buyer's perspective, value is that if I'm going to invest my time and attention in you, right? Right. So you send me an email. I have to invest my time and attention. We have a Zoom call. I have to invest my time and attention. Absolutely. I need to get a return on that time and attention. And the way I met, that's value. And how do I measure that value? Is that as a result of this interaction, Okay. At the end of this interaction, whatever it is, I'm closer to making a decision than I was before it. Hmm. So value is progress, right? As a result of investing my time and attention, I've made progress toward making a decision, meaning I've made progress toward completing this job that's been assigned right. to me, right? Which is taking time away from every my real job. Right. Right. <laughs> this is the thing is, you know, especially in enterprise level, there's we know there's increasing numbers of stakeholders involved in decisions, Correct. all involved in this one process that's not part of their job. Yeah. So what, I want, what do they want to do? They want to get done with the least investment of their time and attention possible. Yeah. I'm not being yeah. paid to do this. I'm being paid to do something else. So if you can't help them, I said, make progress every time you interact with them and every time you demand some of their time and attention. They've got no time for you. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I, I love what you said about, you know, because you think about what you're describing there is a little bit further down in a sales cycle, right? Like you're even the process of helping someone coordinate that group of stakeholders and really align on next steps could have inherent value at some point in the cycle. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. But what you said earlier around getting people out of their echo chamber and getting them to think mm -hmm. differently. Like that could be that inherent value that you're providing when you're trying to get people to think differently, right? Like they may not even know they have a problem yet and they're trying to solve things and things like that. That's that I found sure. super fascinating. Yeah. I mean, well, that comes about in several, several different ways, but that is a role that we play as salespeople is can we help people really think more deeply and broadly about the challenges they face and think right. more deeply and broadly about the outcomes they can achieve by addressing the challenges? Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's one of those things where as I said, as a seller, you hear it all the time. Well, we need to provide value, right? We need to be focused on them. We need to do this. We need to do that. But it's like, okay, great. What does right. that mean? Like, give, give me some. Exactly. Give me, give me some. Well, tactics. That's, right. Well, but it's, it's, let's start with the mindset first, right? Yeah, please. So please. the mindset is we think we need to provide them value. Mm -hmm. All right. But so how do they denominate value? How do they measure value? Well, progress, progress. right? So if we, if we know that progress is value, then we have to be very intentional about how we provide the value. And so I write about it in my book is, look, you need to create a very simple, what I call value plan mm -hmm. for every interaction you plan to have with the buyer. So if you're a sales leader and you've, Going to say you're going to do a pipeline review with a seller. You're going to go through their list of qualified opportunities. Yeah. And for each opportunity, the seller needs to be answered two simple questions. Okay. What does the buyer need from us in this next interaction to help them move closer to making a decision? And as a result of receiving that from us, what steps will they commit to take? 
And if a seller can't answer those basic questions about every opportunity in their pipeline, then they need to take a step back. More discovery needs to be done. Right. More questions need to be asked. More trust needs to be built so they can, they can earn the right to get the answers they need. Yeah. So in my book, I talk about you know, the opposite of selling out is selling in. There's four pillars of selling in. Connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. Now, these are human, innately human behaviors yeah. that drive this buyer-centric way of selling, which also, by the way, executed properly, compresses decision cycles, going to increase your win rates. Yeah. So yeah. start with connection. Connection. We are wired to connect. Right? As humans, we're wired to connect with other people. Absolutely. We want to do that. Through doing that, we're going to build some level of trust with the buyer. Everybody talks about trust, but why is the trust important? Well, trust is important because when we ask our questions, when we deploy our curiosity, in the absence of trust, do we get the answers we want? Right. No. Definitely not. No. You're, you're going to get the same superficial answers they'd give some stranger off the street. Exactly right. Right? So we need to build that level of trust through that connection. So that's the first pillar. Curiosity is second pillar in the book outline, six different question types you can ask, at least that I have found hugely effective for me, but they enable you to serve the point of what you're questioning is, and sort of leads into the understanding pillars, you know, as sellers, unfortunately, it's sort of the cultural thing is, is we sort of train sellers or we socialize sellers to believe that their job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy their product. That's right. And I think, no, that's not the job at all. Our job as a seller is to listen to our buyer, mm -hmm. understand the things that are most important to them in terms of the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve, and then help them get that. That's right. All right. So if you think your job is to persuade, well, you don't really care about understanding because it doesn't really matter. You're trying to persuade them to buy your product, right? right? You're, you're focused it's, on you. You're focused on you and what you right. need to do and the tactics and techniques and manipulation you'll use to get there. Whereas here, if I really understand what's most important to you, then you and I can agree on a target that we're going to work on together to try to achieve. That's right. Because you're making them the center of it all. They're the center of it. So when I understand that, when I get that level of understanding, then I can work with the buyer and say, well, what do I need to provide them to shape what I call the vision of success? Hmm. Right? Because when, and you know this, when you, when your customers sign an order, what are they buying in their mind? What are they buying? They're, they're not buying your product. No, they're buying the outcome. They always ask. They're buying the vision of what it's going to be like to use yeah. your product. That's why I call the vision of success. Yeah. <laughs> well, Forrester did a study, I don't know, 10 plus years ago, roughly about 10 years ago, maybe is, is about this concept and saying, Wow, an enterprise level, if you can be this, the vendor that is sort of first to get the buyer to buy into your vision of success, yeah, your odds of winning go up astronomically. That's like 65% chance of winning. Makes sense. Well, Makes wouldn't, sense. wouldn't you want those odds? So, so that's part of your generosity is helping the buyer co-create this vision of success. And describe how you go about that in the book. But when you look at this and, you know, and sort of in all combined or saying, look, well, if I could be the first to that connection, that first to trust, right. first seller to trust, 
then I'll be the first seller really to be able to get the answers I need to reach that level of understanding. So if I'm first to understanding, then I can be the first to the vision of success. Right. If I can be the first to the vision of success, then what happens is, and this is yeah, based in part on the Nobel Prize winning Herbert Simon, uh, Nobel Prize winner Herbert Simon's work on bound, theory of bounded rationality. He said, look, when, when people make a decision, they have three constraints. Time, they have unlimited time, don't have unlimited access to information, and don't have perfect or they have, by necessity have a limited understanding of the information they can get. Right. And so what he found is that when people get into that situation, that when they do their research for making a decision, when they find a solution that satisfies the requirements and suffices to enable them to hit their desired outcomes, they make the decision. Right. That's called the good enough decision. Good enough. <laughs> and, this, and this is what buyers do. This is the predominant form of decision. People aren't trying to make the absolute best decision because it takes right. too much time and effort to investigate all the alternatives to assure your, ensure your, you know, feel assured that you've made the best decision. Now, there are some people that do that. But he yeah. said, you know, the world basically he created this world called satisfice. satisfice. He said there's, there's people that are satisficers and there's people that are maximizers. Satisficers make the good enough decision. Maximizers will indeed spend all their time, as much time as possible, to investigate all their alternatives to satisfy themselves to making the absolute best choice. But the world's mostly satisficers. Yeah. Think about it from a corporate standpoint, you've got you know 10 people, 10 stakeholders involved with making a decision, and you're trying to buy, let's say, a SaaS product for, I don't know, conversational intelligence. You've got your note taker here on the yep. screen. Absolutely. Is hey. Two years ago, there was, I don't know, maybe a dozen companies doing that. Now there's like three dozen, four dozen companies mm -hmm. that do it. What's the difference between the products? I mean, think about it. I mean, in the mind's eye of the buyer, they're basically all the same. Probably all the same, yeah. So what's the difference? The difference is you. Yeah. It's you, yeah. the seller. You are the difference. They're going to, we know from Challenger and Gartner and others that, that, yeah, the majority of the criteria they use, buyers use in those situations to make a decision based on their interactions, their experience with the individual seller. So if you are the first, as I said, first to connection, the first to trust, first to Cast curiosity, yeah. first to understanding, first to vision of success, and their experience with you is good, they're saying, well, phew, these products are basically all alike. I mean, I could, we could spend another two months to investigate. But my experience with Josh, Josh really did a good job on this. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. And I this is what happens. Fantastic. This is what happens. Now, that's that's a way you compress a decision cycle. I mean, if you're coming from the point of view of seller, I'm going to accelerate sales. It's like, no, <laughs> you're trying to push the buyer. They've got their own time frame. They've got their own agenda. Their own agenda. But if you can help them get to that that vision of success first, that good enough decision point, they're going to do it. Yeah. And if they're involved because in building that vision of success, then they're going to take the steps going back to your two questions that the sales leader needs to ask in the pipeline mm -hmm. meeting, right? Like if, if mm -hmm. they're invested in that vision for sex, for success, they're going to answer the, they're going to help you answer those questions, right? They're going to go with you yeah. towards getting that vision. That's right. And the thing is that this, this requires you keep engaged with your curiosity throughout the entire process. You know, one of the, again, reasons I think we don't get better, haven't been getting better is that we're, 
we're still trying to sell in ways we sold decades ago. Right. And, you know, there's a sort of this myth with, you know, when the SaaS business sort of grew up and we started bringing all these sales technologies in, mm-hmm. you would hear all these people say, oh, well, we're modern sellers. <laughs> well, what's that? Well, basically what we've done is we've taken, we've, we've taken, um, you know, these bad sales behaviors that we've been practicing for decades and we automated them. Sure. And it's like, yeah. So what you're saying is just amplified the bad behavior. So more, of the bad, more, more of the worst stuff out there. That sounds great. right. And that's, that's modern. Yeah, no. So what I propose in the book is something that actually is more modern is aligned with how the buyers want to buy, uh, help you enable them to make their decisions more quickly, which is what buyers want. I mean, you know, I ask people, I say, what's, what's your buyer's job? Right. Talking about the, the group of stakeholders, you know, what's your buyer's job? And they say, oh, to achieve a certain outcome. I said, well, no, that's that's their goal for what they want to achieve. What's their job? Oh, yeah. And I said, what buyers want. Buyers just want to quickly gather because, again, this isn't their primary work, right? They're not getting right. their bonus based on this. It is They want to quickly gather and make sense of the information they need right. to make a good decision with the least investment of their time and attention possible. That's, that's, what, that's what your buyers want to do. They don't want to spend forever to do it if they don't have to spend forever to do it. So it's, it just aligns with how you use the four pillars to say, yeah, I can help you get that job done with less of your resources. So curious, you know, you, you see a lot of chatter, especially on LinkedIn and things like that, of not losing to the competition, but losing to status quo, Right. So sure. where, where are you falling down, do you think, in those four pillars the most if you're losing to status quo? No decision. Understanding. Not getting to the level of understanding, right? And I talk about this in the book is, is the way most sales is transacted is we teach our sellers, look, here's the playbook. Right. Here's, here's our ICP. Here's the persona of who we're talking to. Ask these questions. Right. It's like inputs and outputs. Yeah. But basically what you're doing is just gathering information at that point. So you know something, but what do you understand? Now you look a lot of times in, you know, in the sales playbook and they say, well, look, we have for discovery, which is a box near the beginning. We've got these That's exit right. criteria. If you know these things, you're done with discovery. You can it's move like, on. Yeah. yeah, you're never done with discovery. You discover up until the time you sign the agreement, you're discovering something about that buyer. If you're not, you're in real danger of losing it, right? Yeah, big time. So well, just, I, I always think of a Chris Voss in uh, Never Split the Difference, right? Have you have you read that one? Yeah. Yeah, I always think of that, right? It, the, my takeaway from his methodology was, well, there's discovery and negotiation. That's it. And you're discovering all the way until negotiation. Otherwise, you just, because you're trying to understand more things that are going to help you in that negotiation. Yeah. I mean, it's fundamentally the same thing. It's It's... Yeah, well, that'd be a whole separate interview we could do on that. But um, but yeah, is you can't get up too soon. So what you do is, okay, I know something, but what do I understand about it? Why do I understand this knowledge I have? What do I really understand? Why it's important to the buyer? What's the context in which it's important to the buyer? And sellers stop too soon. Sure. And so, again, if you can't help the buyer think differently about what it is they're trying to achieve or the challenges they're trying to um face and address, then yeah, there's like, well, there's no reason to make a change. Yeah. 
no reason to make a change. So you really have to think, okay, well, what's yeah, what's this paradigm the buyer is sort of operating under? And can I help shift that paradigm? If I can, then I'm creating impetus for change. If I can't, then they'll just stay doing what yeah. they're doing. Yeah, and it sounds like a lot of that understanding comes into their motivations, right? Like, you know, it, if you understand what's most important to them, and I so I tell people is when you think about discovery, not as being sort of this, you know, shotgun approach of box let training. me just gather as much information I can. Yeah. Is I don't know what your experience, but mine has been over decades of my career is, is, and deals from, you know, five figure deals to nine figure deals sure. is that sure. there's always one thing that's more important than all the others. Totally. And you need to find out what that one thing is. And if you, yep. until you yep. understand that, then you're either at a competitive risk or risk of them just staying status quo. Yep. But everybody has, that's why I talk about is our job is to listen and understand what are the most important things to them? Because if we don't understand what's the most important, yeah, we don't have a path forward. Yeah. And yeah, I've learned this early in my career. When my, I was selling computer systems for accounting purposes to construction industry. Yeah. Back when computers filled a room full of, uh, of equipment. <laughs> and I remember going through this really competitive sales process, uh, multiple vendors, and we had to demonstrate every single general ledger package a million times. And we had to jump through all these hoops. You've been through there again and again. Absolutely. And, and I remember going back to the customer, I don't know, maybe six months after they had started implementing. And we'd sold them like, <laughs> 10 channels, different channels, payables, receivables, job costs, all these packages. They were just running billing. Hmm. I look at the, I talked to the CEO. I said, I noticed you're only running billing. He goes, oh yeah. Yeah. That's what's paying for the whole thing. I'm like, you son of a bitch. You made us jump through so many hoops. <laughs> just for billing. <laughs> and, and you don't even tend to implement most of those probably. That's you know right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's like for me, a young a young person in a sales career is like, oh, and that's suddenly that repeated itself time and time again. All these stories like, there's just one, there's usually just one thing that's more important. If you figure out what that is, if you can learn what that is, build trust, build the connection, yep. ask the great questions, keep, keep pinging, you'll find out what that is. And when you know that, yeah, you're in a position to win. And it might surprise you what that one thing is. Oh, it, it oftentimes <laughs> will. Well, I have another story is, is I tell us one is, so with one startup I was with, we were selling these big satellite communication systems and we were in a competition to sell to um, biggest cruise line in Asia at the time. This is a while ago. I don't know if they still are. And this was gonna be the first system almost really in the world that was gonna be uh, high-speed browsing in the stateroom and wow. uh, voice over IP. And, and we were a small company competing as these big tech integrators that were, you know, going all out to get this business. Yeah. And we did get down selected to like the final three. And then they submit this RFP for the final three vendors. Hmm. And it's just, the compliance matrix was like 30 pages long, yeah. all these items, yeah. things we had to comply with. And I turned to the, Guys, the account manager, and I said, their account exec, I said, so these are not all equally important. <laughs> so you need to go find out which ones they're really driving them and their decision. Right. So he did. He got on a plane, went back to Asia <laughs> and, and called me 
And he said, got it. He said, so he had, had a conversation with the chairman CEO of the company and they'd gone out and had some beers and so on. It sort of revealed that, yeah, he, yeah. High-speed browsing in the stateroom. Eh, that's fine. Voice RP. Eh, that's great. That'd be nice to have. Yeah. What he really wanted was he wanted real time up to the minute information on the take from the casinos on board the ships. Oh, that's where all the money was being made. Absolutely. So the others, yeah, but they took up nowhere in the, in the RFP. Was it really mentioned that this was the real thing for him? So, and so we, address that. we could address it. So we shifted the proposal all around. We said, we said, look, we're going to give you a dedicated link just for the casino. We're going to make, have hot swap standby on board. So it never, ever goes down no matter what happens. That's right. And pretty much ignored three quarters of what was in the RFP. And, and we yeah. won. There you go. <laughs> because that was the most important thing. That's so, so cool. it's, it's there. You just have to find it. Everybody has it. I love and you may so say, okay, that. multiple stakeholders. They may have multiple different, most important things. Absolutely. Part of your job is how are you going to reconcile that? Yeah. A uh, similar story. The one that was a shocker to me, right? So this is years ago. I was selling just a, it wasn't a huge deal, but it was more of a optimization for a marketing automation platform. Right. And it was highly competitive. I think there were three, four of the standard competitors in that set. And we learned that the woman that we were selling to is the primary stakeholder. What she really wanted was to be standing up on the stage, speaking and telling her story at the next mm-hmm. conference. Right. So once we knew yeah. that, we were able to tailor. Invitation in the mail. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Like how, you know, once we knew that, we could tailor our approach to her standing up on stage and delivering because it's going to be the best practice. It's going to be blah, blah, blah. And, it, you know, it was a difference maker, right? That's what ultimately one to do. Yeah. Well, that's also leads to another critical point, which is, you know, in the stakeholder groups is they're not all equal. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody, everybody thinks stakeholders consensus. It's like, right. mm, no, maybe, but there was some research done by um, a professor at USC named Steve Martin, not the comedian, but <laughs> um, he did on, on, I don't know, it was maybe five years ago on buying groups. <laughs> he said, people are humans, right? You know, it's like you put 12 people together for a jury. The dominant person will always stand out and they're more influential, Always similar to a stakeholder. So, a stakeholder group, there's going to be, you know, the bully with the pulpit, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to find out who that person is too. So not only what is most important to them, who is it most important to? Yeah. And I think it's important in that it's not always the highest level C title. No, no. I think no. that's a de facto I mean, thing. Oh, I've got the decision maker. I've got the CEO on the phone. I've, I've lost deals, unfortunately, with, you know, had the buy-in from the CEO and that wasn't enough. Or... Yes, I've seen that. Or <laughs> I, I've had situations where, where this, I was actually on the receiving end of this, is where I was running this division of this company and we were um, specifying some chips that were going to go into a product we were building. My engineers right. had specified, but the salesperson from one chip manufacturer, un, unnamed, <laughs> a very large one, insisted, he said, we said, you got the order. No, no, I need to talk to the CEO. It's like, this had been the method, right? They've been trained, had to talk. Right, had to. Yeah. And so I said, okay, because <laughs> I knew it was exactly what was going to happen. Is he goes, and this, this was a technical founder of the CEO. Yeah. So he, and one of the 
brightest engineers I ever met. Yeah. And yeah. so he gets the meeting and he pitches the CEO and the CEO goes, why am I in this meeting? Obviously. And the guy says, well, you know, I want to make sure you're buying, blah, 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 blah. And the CEO goes, well, you know, I didn't really have an opinion about that before, but now I you do. Know. And guess what? It wasn't good for this guy at all. Nope. And it's like, I've seen this play out on multiple occasions is, you know, there are people, I call them actual decision makers, right? Yeah. Whether they have P&L responsibility or they got operational responsibility for something, they're the ones that you have to get the buy-in from. And yeah, you can spend doing a lot of time doing what I call overselling, which is yeah. selling too high in the organization when you don't really need to. Well, and there's actually a way you can sort of graph it out. I create a little quadrant in my first book. I talk about this, create a little quadrant. And sort of on the x-axis is uh, strategic nature to the company. Is it, you know, yeah. one is it very strategic or not strategic and then cost, right? Yeah. And on the y-axis. And so if it's really strategic and more expensive in the upper right-hand quadrant, then you expect you're going to call higher. Yeah, for sure. In the organization, right? But if it's otherwise, then probably not. You can yeah. plot yeah. where you stand. You just have to be pragmatic about how strategic your product really is to the company and the mission of the company you're selling to. Well, and going back to your, you know, four pillars, right? So say the salesperson in that situation that you outlined, where they're selling to you and they did all those things great, you know, the, the connectivity, the curiosity, the understanding and the generosity, well, they broke that down and went the other way by making that move, right? Like the trust yeah. wall, just the, you just threw up a trust barrier that you had broken down. Now it's back up. Yeah. Well, and so think about this. This happens all the time though. In un, well, yeah, unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, but sure. is think about sellers that it's on the other end, the sellers that bring in the bosses. The boss, yeah. Too 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 soon. Mm-hmm. Right? Is and too often. And sometimes you just have to tell your boss pack off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I'm not bringing you in. Uh, because depending on what they say when they come in is basically, it's very common for, you know, if you bring your VP in, VP says something. And usually what they do is ask the buyer, like start telling their story again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, tell me about your requirements. So it, it, it's like, as soon as they do that, they're telegraphing to the buyer. Yeah. This person doesn't a lot of trust in the salesperson because he's asking totally. for all the information we already gave them. Yep. So. Yeah, it goes both ways. You got to be very careful. I see that happen so much in the B two B SaaS world. You know, I, I we have a lot of software partners, and I wind up getting in co sales deals with them as a professional services and consulting firm. And I, you see these manager ride alongs like from day one. Oh yeah, I'm like, man, what are you doing? Like, well, why can't we just have some dialogue and just you know, like you said, let's start at the beginning. Let's connect with these people, right? You don't need your yeah. manager for that. Let, let's let's just so here's it a little bit. Got a rule of thumb. Yeah. Okay. Rule of thumb is your odds of winning a deal are in inverse proportion to the number of times you ask the buyer to tell you their story. Hmm. So anytime you bring someone new into the account and they go, tell us about you again and what's, what are you trying to achieve? And so on. The more you do that, the less likely you are going to be to win the deal. That's great stuff, Andy. I love it. Well, Andy, where can the listeners find you? Where can they find your book? Like, give us the rundown. 
Sure. Well, find the book uh, wherever you buy your books online. All right. uh, Amazon. It's available in all three versions. If you like audiobook, uh, digital book, real books, <laughs> real paperback books. Actually, a lot of people buying the audiobook and the real book. That's our f- love it. I like that, but it's it's nice. They like to listen to it. Um, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, very active on LinkedIn. So Andy Paul and connect with me. Yeah. Message me if you're having questions about the book. Otherwise you can go to my website, andypaul.com and you can download a free chapter of the book. And we actually have a little fun little quiz there. Um, an assessment, if you will, Love it. whether you're, whether you're salesy or not salesy, figure out uh, whether you're selling out or selling in where oh. you sit on the spectrum between the two. I'm on it. I'll be doing that right after we finish recording. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's not hugely scientific, but it is fun. Very fun. Well, Andy, thank you for joining the show. Listeners, if you enjoyed Andy, please go and give us a review. We would love to have that. Andy, have a great afternoon. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you. Thank you.